I told Derek I have a new favorite worship song now. I've never heard that one before. That's new to me. I really like that. Let's pray, church. We'll ask God to focus our hearts. God, we come in here in the midst of a busy week, and we've taken time to sing before you and try and center our hearts that way. We ask right now that you would supernaturally cause us to be fully present in the moment. God, I ask that you would give us the capacity to shut out the distractions from this past week. Give us the capacity to focus on you. Whatever cares are on our heart, allow us to lay them at your feet. Help us to stop carrying the burdens. Stop trying to project what's going to happen in the week ahead of us. What we know that we're assured of is this present moment. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So in this moment, God, we ask that you would speak to us. I believe it's your desire to speak to every single individual in this auditorium, just as you have in the past services. That you want to commune with your church. So God, regardless of what we brought into this auditorium, we ask that you help us to set it aside. Refresh our hearts, bring us to the point of being fully focused, cause us to hear from you, and that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. So we ask God that your Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Truth, the God who created this universe, the the God who orchestrates human history, is the God of truth. Do you agree with that? I'll say it again because you don't sound convinced. The God who created the universe, the God who has orchestrated human history, is the God of truth. Therefore, he cannot lie. So the things that you find in Scripture, God's words are true. That's what we're told in Scripture, Hebrews 6.18, when it speaks of God's nature and character. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. That's replete. It's throughout the entire Bible. God cannot lie. Therefore, what you read in His Word is truth. His word is absolute. It's unchangeable. Absolute in all that it commands and accurate in everything that it describes. The Old Testament writers understood that. The ancients of the time before Jesus, looking forward to His time, when they wrote of the nature and character of God, they said this in Psalm 119, Your law is truth. They understood that. So there's no gray area. There's no picking and choosing. What God says is true. And because God is its author, His Word reveals its authority. His authority. That's what it reveals to us. So it's true not only when it speaks to matters of spiritual issues in your life. It's true when it speaks to issues of morality of science, 
of history and future things. We're going to look at future things a little bit today when we get near the end of the message. But here's another thing that Scripture reveals about God. It calls Him him the God of all comfort. So whatever burdens you carry, what's true about God is that He is the God who comforts us. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 1.3. The God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction. So if it says that, and it's God's Word, and it's true, that's what we understand. And the evidence of that is what we've seen in the last few weeks as we've been working through this issue of the Last Supper. Jesus is with the disciples. They've gone from the upper room to the area called the Kidron Valley, walking through the Kidron Valley to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas is going to lead a troop of soldiers, and they're carrying the arrest warrant. And we're going to see that very soon. In the weeks ahead now, we get into the crucifixion. But at this moment in time, Jesus is walking with them, and he's been comforting them. Now, before I jump ahead and we pick up again in John chapter 16, let me remind you of what we learned last week, because what we saw was God talking about God. God the Son talking about God the Spirit. And nowhere else in Scripture can you find a better description of the Holy Spirit than when God Himself speaks of it. And we found that last week. And I want to show you on the screen again what the six things we saw that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that are true. It's in your notes this morning. If you picked up one of the bulletins on the way in, you'll find it there as well, but also on the screen. Here's six factors that Jesus wanted us to know. First of all, the coming of the Holy Spirit would bring glory to Jesus. He would glorify Christ. Second one, He's going to act as the Spirit of truth. Third thing, He would guide believers into truth. You, when you open up God's Word and you spend time reading God's Word, just like the disciples, you are guided into truth and understanding because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He would show believers things to come. And He would take the things of Christ and explain them to his church. So when you come to church or when you open up your Bible during the course of the week, you spend time in God's Word, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, causing you to see things you wouldn't see on your own. That's why when I pray to start a message, I ask for God's Spirit to be our guide and instructor because He's the one who teaches us. Yes, you may hear me speaking, but I'm merely the spokesman for God in this case of what he's shown to me. It's the Holy Spirit who's prompting you, causing things to resonate within you. Things that you wouldn't see typically on your own. So let's move forward into where we left off. We left off at verse 15 last week. We're going to pick up on verse 16 this week. This is Jesus speaking directly to the disciples again. John chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. This will be a great time. If you're new to New Hope, First of all, welcome, and you'll find Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, those Bibles are there not only for your benefit to follow along now, but we want you to take one with you when you leave. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand, and it's our gift to you. We give it to you so you can freely take it with you. But let's follow along in John chapter 16 and verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. (laughs) Kind of a confusing statement, isn't it? Well, the disciples felt the same way. What? What did he just say? Well, let's break it apart here because it's kind of a complicated statement that he made. The first little while, if you could break that out into quotes, that first one, it's marking the time until his death. Two hours. No more than that. 
They're, they're on their way to the valley, and Judas is going to intercept. There's a prayer that takes place first. Jesus prays for the church, but right immediately after that, he's arrested. So this first little while is less than two hours before he's arrested in the garden, and the apostles, as a result of that, lose sight. They don't only lose sight of Jesus physically, but they lose sight of him spiritually. You're going to see evidence of that as we work through the text. They don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And their, their faith is dwarfed by the despair. They're feeling both physical pain and spiritual despair at the same time. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you to understand that. On Easter morning when Jesus was resurrected, remember the Holy Spirit hadn't arrived yet until Pentecost. Easter morning, Jesus is resurrected he finds a couple of his disciples on their way to a city called Emmaus, walking down a two-track. And he joins them on this path. He's walking with them. And they're just full of grief because their eyes were fixed on the physical reality of Jesus. And they'd lost physical sight of him. So because he's gone, they believed everything was over. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 24, 21. This is some disciples speaking who were grief-stricken. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it is the third day since these things happened. See, Jesus was walking alongside him, and He asked him what was going on. Why were they so unhappy? And you see what happened. They're full of grief. They thought everything had fallen apart. And the fact that they believed not, according to Mark 16, when they first heard of his resurrection they heard about the resurrection but they didn't believe it according to mark is proof of what's going on in their heart the state condition of their heart that's why jesus said you're a pretty unique group i don't know if you knew that church in 2012 you're a very unique group of people when jesus talked to the disciples looking forward in time he said to them blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe you know what he's talking about you you haven't even seen Jesus and yet believe. And Jesus said, as a result of that, you're blessed. Now here's the second half of his complicated statement when he says, a little while and you won't see me, and again a little while and you will see me. What's he talking about there? He's saying, I'm going to die. You will see me in a little while though because I'm going to rise again. So Jesus will die, but Jesus will rise. That's what he's saying in that very concise statement. Now move forward with me because this really confuses the disciples. Go to verse 17. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? So they were saying, What is this he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. They're, they're confused, aren't they? And this really proves the evaluation of what Jesus just said last week. When we were looking at the text, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't handle it. You can't bear all that I want to share with you. You look at that earlier in, verse, in chapter 16. That's where we saw that last week. I, I can't even give you the information I want to give you. And, and they're confused about a simple statement like this. Now, the disciples have not been heard from since chapter 14. All of chapter 15, they're silent. Half of chapter 16, they're silent. 
But this really mysterious statement just pounces on them. And it causes them to engage and they jump into the conversation. Now this church presents a window for us into the world of those who live their life apart from understanding who Jesus is. By that meaning, individuals who are not believers in Jesus, who do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them, you are seeing evidence of what that does to them right here in this passage. Because the disciples at this point, they have information. They've walked with Jesus. They have bits and pieces. They've asked Him questions, but they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they can't make sense of God's Word. It's perplexing to them, and they're not able to grasp What is God saying? So that's very much the case with individuals who are not believers in Jesus who do not as yet have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. When they read Scripture, it doesn't make sense to them. It's confusing. So what's clear for us today, what was clear for Jesus when he said it, is mysterious to them. Now, I love verse 19 because in two little words, it tells me something about the nature and character of my God. Verse 19 says, Jesus knew If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can circle that. Jesus knew. What's that tell you? God takes the initiative. God, who is the God of all comfort, moves in to comfort the disciples. He knew what was going on in their heart. Now, here's the problem. There is no place in their theology for a Messiah who's going to die on a cross, be killed in a form of execution, leave them, and go away. It just doesn't exist. It's not in their realm of thinking. Yet... There ought to have been, because the Old Testament is filled with it. The Old Testament talked about what was going to happen with the Messiah when he came. There was a very clear description. But there's no place in their theology, in their understanding of God's word, that that's going to happen. And here's something I'm convinced of. The difficulties that we find in Scripture, the things that we try and grasp and confuse are self-created. We look at God's word and are confused by certain things due to our own preconceived ideas of what God will do and what God won't do. The disciples are guilty of that at this moment. They knew the Old Testament. They had preconceived ideas of what God does do and what God doesn't do. They put him in a box, and there is no room in their theology for a Messiah who's going to die on a cross. But that was contrary to God's plan. Go forward with me now to verse 20 because Jesus is going to clear it up for him. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Any of you moms here can agree with that statement? Okay. Tentatively, a few of you, all right? You still remember the labor pains, okay? I know that doesn't eliminate them, but the joy overpowers it. Look forward with me, his finishing statement in verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, when Jesus starts out a statement, anytime you see in the Bible, truly, truly, the Greek language for that is amen, amen. And it means it's solid. You can take this to the bank as absolute truth. The world is going to party. 
There's going to be a rejoicing time because they're going to dispose of me so decisively. They're going to, wow, we dealt with that guy. Time to rejoice. And they did. They thought Jesus was done for. So when he says, amen, amen, there's weight in what he's about to say. He wants to clarify for them. The world's going to see this as a victory. And to help them transform their mindset from this issue of grief into joy, he sketches a first century illustration for them that's just as applicable today in 2012 by using the image of labor pains. Intense agony gives way to fulfilled joy. So if, if you'll forgive the pun on an analogy, this is really pregnant with meaning, okay? There's a lot of power in what Jesus is saying because in the Old Testament, the imagery of a woman in labor pains was very much an image of what Israel would go through, going through intense trauma before God would bring about the delivery and restore their joy. It's also the same imagery that was spoken of about Jesus When in Isaiah, Isaiah wrote about when the Messiah comes, he's going to go through torment and agony, but it's going to yield great joy. So when Jesus used this analogy of a woman in labor, the disciples tune in instantly. They understand that analogy. Because in birth, God does not substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain, does he? He doesn't substitute another experience. Instead, God uses what is already there. He transforms the experience. He takes what is painful and makes it joyful. So to the mother experiencing birth pains, every minute seems like an hour. Now understand, I speak as a man, okay? But I've been in the delivery room with my wife, and I know what she experienced, at least by listening Okay? and watching, but I didn't feel it. So, ladies, I'm not trying to speak out of my realm of expertise here. But Jesus is associating the pain that a woman feels with the pain that the disciples felt. Your grief is going to be intense, but your concept is going to change. Your feelings about this moment are going to change. And then he says, your heart will rejoice And no one can take that joy away. When did that happen? When the disciples hit that point of rejoicing was at the moment of comprehension when they understood on Easter morning at the resurrection, bam, it all made sense. It was confusing. At first they didn't believe it. But when they saw the resurrected Jesus himself, that joy could not be eliminated. And then with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, That completed it. So there's more going on here than just seeing the resurrected Jesus. That's much less complete because that only lasted 40 days. Don't know if you know that story at all. But when Jesus was resurrected, he walked planet Earth for 40 more days. People saw him. Groups of as big as 500 at one time saw him. Individuals witnessed him personally. But after 40 days, he's physically gone. However, the joy remained. Because the Holy Spirit came. And that's a joy that only God can bring. The Spirit produced joy, and it's permanent. And it can never be erased. Nothing can undo the work of grace in a believer. That's what God has done for us. And he's done it through the power of the cross. So we're not saying here that the event that's causing sorrow was somehow replaced, but rather it's the same event that brought about the joy. 
the light of comprehension has caused the disciples to view the cross in its proper perspective. So when you see a cross on the wall, someone wears it as an ornament on their body. They put it on a chain and wear it around their neck, perhaps a lapel pin. We're looking at an instrument of death that confused people throughout the first century. When Paul wrote, if I boast of anything, I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. How can you boast in an instrument of death? I mean, you could put an electric chair on the wall. That's what it was. It was an instrument of death, an instrument of torture. And that's what the Romans used it for. And yet, we're told that this cross, put in its proper perspective, brings joy. So here's the principle for us to take out of this very short passage right there. God brings joy into our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. Things that are trauma in your life, that you travail, that you labor through. God transforms them for his own purposes because God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So this is true in our walk with Christ. God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of his grace to it, and he transforms what is a trial into a triumph. Just in the midst of the trial, we can't always see the triumph at the end of the road. And it's true for the disciples. That's why Jesus is saying, hey, there's a moment coming. (laughs) You're going to rejoice, and your joy will not be eliminated. That's consistent with the nature and character of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Let me show you on the screen, Deuteronomy 23.5. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. He was doing that in the ancient days, doing that in the New Testament days, doing that today. Here's three very quick examples of that. Think of Joseph. Old Testament Joseph, not Joseph the father of Jesus, but Old Testament Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. God transformed that defeat into victory. Think of Egypt. Egypt persecuted Israel, put them in slavery 400 years. What did it cause them to do? Explode as a nation. They grew in huge numbers. God used it for his purposes. Saul, every time King Saul tried to kill David, it caused David to become more of a man of God. And he sat down and he wrote the book of Psalms as a result of it. God taking things that seem like trauma and transforming them for triumph. Let's move forward into verse 23 because he's going to clarify further what he's saying. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. In that day, what's he talking about? In that day, he's talking about after the Holy Spirit arrives. Because Jesus is physically going to be gone. And up till now, for these years that he's walked with the disciples, they ask questions, he answers questions. But after 40 days, after the resurrection, he's gone. But they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends to heaven, no longer physically present, to question him. So there's something really significant going on here. When he makes that statement, the significant thing is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life And God promised at the moment you confess Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters your body and indwells you. This same Holy Spirit indwelt the disciples and became the resident truth teacher, giving you a capacity to speak to things and understand things in the Bible that you previously could not as a non-believer. 
So at last, the disciples are going to understand why Jesus had to die. His relationship with the Father would be clarified. Why he had to go away. All of that's going to make sense to them. And then Jesus says, Amen. Amen. Truly, truly. You see, it reoccurs again. I mean, it's another very important truth. Now, this is the third time the night of the Last Supper, that Jesus has brought up the issue of prayer. And here's why this one is really significant on the third time. He's telling them from this point forward, they're going to be praying directly to God the Father. They no longer need to ask Jesus. And this is very significant. This prayer form is brand new to the disciples. They've never heard this before. Now, you live in 2012. You've been raised in the church, many of you. Some of you are new to church. But it's common to pray to God the Father directly. So not only for the disciples are they learning an entirely new teacher is coming to their midst, the Holy Spirit. But there's a new form of prayer to take place. And why? He says, so that your joy may be made full. So how is your joy made full? By receiving the things in your life that only God can do. It brings you to an awareness of how much God loves you. Dr. Warren Wearsby captured this really well. I'm going to show you his quote on the screen. Not mine, but I thought it was a great insight, so I want to share this with you. This is what he had to say about this moment. This was the promise that they desperately needed to believe, that the Father loved them and would hear their request and meet their needs. While Jesus was on earth, he met all the needs of the disciples. Now he would return to the Father, but the Father would meet their needs. Here is the wonderful promise and privilege of prayer. So you've got a promise to believe in, that God loves you so much that he wants you to talk to him as an obedient believer and share with him the things going on in your life. So I see three forms of joy that have appeared already in this short passage. First of all, we've got the joy in realizing the fact that God uses this principle of transformation. And the second one is there's joy in prayer. Do you you think that when Jesus shared this information with them that he did that in just a very monotone form? I tell you the truth, when you come to the Father, he will be excited to hear from you. No, I think Jesus was full of animation and excitement. Guys, I gotta tell you the truth. You get to go to the Father directly now. I'm sure he's full of as much enthusiasm as you would be sharing this information with them. He wanted them to know. And the third joy that he's about to tell them about is they get to share in his victory. You and I get to share in his victory. And that's the future thing we're going to talk about in just a moment. Go with me to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. There's an hour coming when the veil's going to be lifted. The blinders are going to go off. And this is why I think Jesus spoke in excited tones. There's an hour coming. And this even happened on the day that Jesus was resurrected. Before Pentecost, Jesus began explaining to them, and they understood. Let me show you on the screen so I can back that up for you. Luke 24, 27. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded the things concerning himself. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Here's another example. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. 
So this is on Easter Sunday before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They began putting the pieces together. Jesus explained to them what's going on. Now he said something very interesting in verse 26. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father. What's that telling you? You personally have direct access to the throne room of God, the full privilege of coming before God the Father, and that is when it's consistent with the will of the Son, because he said, when you ask in my name, we looked at that two and three weeks ago, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? And church, we have that privilege because of one reason, the Father himself loves you. If you've never circled anything in your Bible and you're uncomfortable doing that, I hope that you would be comfortable with circling this one. In verse 27, the Father himself loves you. And there's a clause attached to it. You see the clause? Because, with God there's a clause, he loves you because we have loved Christ and believe. I'm going to explain that in just a minute because we thought... In our common thinking, everybody in the world believes God is love. And yes, that's true, but there's different degrees of love that is demonstrated to believers in Jesus Christ. I'm going to clarify that for you in just a minute. There's a very common false belief about God that he's indifferent and that he's harsh among common society. People who think of the Old Testament God think of him as being vindictive and vengeful. And they think of the New Testament God as being kind of indifferent and pretty harsh about the things that he does. But we're told that is very different in the Bible about how we personally have access to God who is not vindictive, but is the God of love. Let me remind you, if you haven't gone to Hebrews in a long time, what Hebrews chapter four says about your prayer relationship with God the Father. Look with me up on the screen at Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, there's a number of individuals who attend New Hope now who have come from different backgrounds in churches. There's individuals who have come from Catholic traditions in which they've been taught you have to pray through the saints or you have to pray through Mary. What my Bible is telling me and very clearly speaking is that Jesus says you have direct access to God the Father. And this is a truth of Scripture that many times people will dance around because they're uncomfortable about offending individuals, not meaning to offend anyone. But I want you to understand what Jesus has to say is you have direct access to God the Father. It's called the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, meaning that Jesus is your high priest and you need nothing else other than to pray to God the Father. So you don't have to pray through Mary. You don't have to pray through the saints. What Scripture says, according to what we just saw in Hebrews, is that we can draw near to him with confidence because he sees us as his children. That's why I wanted you to focus on verse 27 when it says, the Father himself loves you. 
Now let's understand what he means when he says love because I said just a minute ago, love to a greater degree for believers in Jesus. The word that Jesus himself uses is the word phileo when he uses the word love. So I want to explain that to you because when we see phileo, we understand there's something going on there affection-wise. Look at the definition and you'll see that it's a very academic description to have affection for. But the way that Jesus used it in the intonation is written in the Greek language means a deep, caring, abiding affection. Such as a father has for his child and children have back in reciprocation to their parents. It's the love of emotion. So when you see the word phileo, the, the city of Philadelphia got its name from this word. It's talking about this, the love of emotion. It's very, very deep as opposed to the word agapeo. So in John 3.16, when you read, for God so loved the world, it's this word, for God so agapeo the world. That's the love of will. God decided to, and he loves his creation. And in truth, God does love, but we're talking about different degrees of love for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. He has a fatherly love, an affection love, because they believe in Jesus. And that's why Jesus followed it up by saying, the Father himself loves you because we have loved and we believe. That's confirmation. So here's the truth. Because of this truth, we enter into his presence with complete confidence as children for whom he cares deeply for. You can take that to the bank. Now let's move on to verse 28 because Jesus has one more thing to say and then you get a huge reaction from the disciples. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father you won't find a more concise statement in the entire Bible than that one right there that is the summary of why Jesus came and his whole purpose for being here. You're looking at the core doctrine of the Christian faith. And if you've never seen it in such a short sentence before, you'll find it in John 16. He said why he came, what he accomplished, and that he was going back. We understand from the very beginning of our study called The Portrait, the series that we're in, in John 1.1, when we were told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that that complements what Jesus just said. Apart from embracing that principle and believing it as truth, no one can be saved. That's what Scripture tells us. That's why Jesus said in John eight twenty four. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, meaning the Yahweh of the Old Testament, Unless you believe that I'm he, you will die in your sins. That's why that verse in those short little phrase sentence, I came from the Father into the earth, I'm returning to the Father, a very concise statement about what he accomplished for us. Now let's see, based on everything Jesus said to them, what the disciples' reaction is. Go with me to verse 29. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly, and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Lo. Want to add that into your speech this week? Want to use biblical language when you're talking to your friends? 
Hello. I'm going to show you the Greek word up on the screen because the disciples were surprised. The word is a day. And it's just an interjectory phrase. So look with me up on the screen and you see it. It denotes surprise. So somehow in the English language, low became whoa. And it made its way to California in the surfing culture. Whoa. Okay. So here's what you see the disciples doing. Oh, it day. Now we get it. Now we understand. That's their reaction. Because at last they're beginning, the, the plan is becoming clear. They're putting the pieces together. He's spoken of his origin, he's spoken of his mission, he's spoken of his return, the Father's love for them, and their access to the Father. And so they make this really confident statement. A day. We believe you came from God. And this is way more than just an affirmation of the Lord's teaching. That's not what's going on here. This is nothing less than a complete declaration of Jesus as deity. This is the apex of the understanding of the disciples prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Their capacity to see who he is, and that's why they go on to say, You don't even need anyone to ask you questions, meaning you don't need anybody to test you. You have proven yourself. Now, although they're not yet capable of fully understanding what Jesus has been saying, the aroma, the scent is so fresh, it energizes them, and that's why they're putting the pieces together. Now, the disciples' faith, although very, very genuine, is completely immature, and Jesus is going to call them on it. Now, up till this point, we've been working through the Last Supper, and we've seen Jesus called Peter out, and he said, Peter, you think you understand, but before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times, even before the cock crows. So Peter's been warned, and now the disciples, all of them are about to be warned. They're going to do the same thing. Go with me to verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I'll paraphrase this according to Mark. You believe because you think you understand and everything's going your way, but what happens when I'm taken from you? See, they're on the edge of being severely tested, and they don't know that they're about to fall off the edge, and their faith is going to be shattered shaken to the very foundations. Only a few hours later, everyone runs to his own home, John included. When you read the book of John, you're reading the 95-year-old version of John looking back over the course of his life and looking at a 20-year-old John who couldn't understand these pieces trying to put them together. He was just like the rest of the disciples. They all scattered because God is the God of truth and he never lies and he said, you're going to run. Now, I have an observation for you that is not my own. It comes from a theologian by the last name of Dodd, and I found it so compelling when I came across the quote. I wanted you to see it in regards to this passage. Matter of fact, when I read it, I said, Lo, this is cool. So let me show it to you. The damping down of enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising if we did not remember 
that it corresponds to a constant pattern. It is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owned its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them, and this they could never forget. No wonder Jesus said to the disciples, I have many more things to say to you, and you can't handle them. You can't bear them because he understood them very well. Now Jesus looks beyond their collapse. He looks beyond their failure, and he looks to the time of their restoration when he ends chapter 16 with this last verse, which is a word of encouragement. Verse 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world." Do you see the key in the midst of that verse? The key is found in me. In me, you have peace. The world has tribulation. In me, you have victory because I have overcome the world. So when we yield ourselves to Christ, he enables us to become overcomers. You remember that word from when we studied the book of Revelation, those of you that were here at that time, about a year and a half ago? Constantly we use the word overcomer because it has a very specific meaning. Jesus said that we are overcomers. We have a spiritual position in Christ when we believe him for victory. And that requires us to recognize that he is utterly capable and we are utterly incapable and he is the one who brings the victory. So the literal words that he used here when he says, be of good courage, take courage, it's cheer up. I've won. Cheer up. Get your act together. My power, my presence. Be of good cheer. It's my victory. So earlier we talked about God being the transformer, bringing transformation to our mind, taking what seems like horrible circumstances and turning them into triumph. He's doing that with the disciples. He transforms sorrow into joy. After the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would be radically transformed from individuals who hid in closets to those who went out in public and began to speak openly about Jesus. What did they become? They became warriors for the kingdom, the super nikao, the over comers that revelation talks about when it talks about the church so understand this with me i know if you've grown up in church you're very familiar with a statement that was made in the book of acts about peter preaching let me show you this acts 4:12, just to refresh your mind there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved you know when that statement was made when peter was in the midst of of the Sanhedrin Council, the exact same individuals who put Jesus to death only a month earlier, who still had the same power to put Peter to death. And yet the same guy who ran, who denied Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, ran and hid, is the same one you find a month later standing in the midst of the temple saying, do whatever you want to to me, but there is no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus by which you must be saved. What happens when someone transforms like that? How does that happen? 
His victory, Jesus' victory, made the world's opposition seem pointless, and Peter no longer cared. He did not care what they could do to him. That's why he was whipped and beaten and thrown into prison, because he understood the decisive battle has been won, one greater than the prince and power of the air of this world came to planet Earth, and he crushed the prince of the air, meaning Satan. The world brought to the battlefront its legion. It brought the best army that it could, but the Son of God prevailed. And that's why Jesus said, take courage, guys. I have overcome. I am the Nakao. Did you know that Jesus has a war cry? This should really resonate with you guys. You always you know, see the battle speech just before the battle takes place, right? Somebody's riding on a horse back and forth. The armies are gathered, and you see the battle speech. Well, there's a war cry from Jesus, too. And here's the war cry that comes from Jesus. It's from Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus speaking. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's the word overcome that I wanted to remind you of from our study in the book of Revelation. The word Nikao. It's where the company Nike gets its name. Nikao. To prevail. To get the victory. Jesus says, I am the Nikao. And you who overcome because of what I've done, the Hooper Nikao, the warriors of the kingdom, will sit down with me at my throne one day. That's why I'm convinced, like the sound of many rushing waters, there is a day, church, when I'm going to stand next to you or kneel next to you in heaven, and unceasingly, everlastingly, we are going to echo through the corridors of heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and power and glory because he's made us the nakao as well. We are the overcomers. And what you're going to see next week is Jesus has taught them the word and he's going to teach them next week what it's really like to talk to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as individuals who many times do not feel like the nakao. We do not feel like the overcomers. And in truth, Father, we are only the overcomers because of what you accomplished, because of your grace, your mercy, and your compassion. But you see us through perfect eyes, and you are the God who does not lie. You are the God of truth, and it is impossible for you to lie. So when you said that we will sit down at your throne one day, we do believe, Father, that we will sit with you as those whom you look on, that you deeply love, that you have an abiding affection for, whom you want to hear from. You are the God who transforms what is a trial into a triumph. So as your people, we pray, we praise you. We recognize we are utterly incapable, but you are capable. It is through the resurrected name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can even stand and sing at this moment because you are indescribable. You are unattainable except for what you did 
to the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose one day face we will see, and we will say, worthy is the Lamb. God, empower us as we sing right now, as we sing to that King. See us as individuals whom you know to be the overcomers. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.